Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Hello and welcome to Global Council Podcasts. My name is Alexander Smatrov and I'm the practice lead for Central and Eastern Europe, Russia and Eurasia here at Global Council. We are now six weeks into the war in Ukraine and have been closely following the events on the ground and their impact on people's lives, on policymaking around the globe and on businesses which have faced an unprecedented set of challenges. Global Council have already convened a number of online events uh, to look into the effects of the war on different countries and sectors of economy. We have, for example, looked into the impact of rising food prices and disrupted wheat exports from Russia and Ukraine to the Middle East. We have discussed whether Europe can accelerate its green transition and energy supplies, uh, diversification to reduce dependence on the Russian gas. We have even traveled back in history to look into the origins of the claims about the guarantees allegedly given to Russia on uh, the NATO non-enlargement. These are very often used nowadays to uh, justify uh, the uh, invasion uh, into Ukraine. And uh, uh, we tried to debunk various political manipulations with history used uh, uh, for this. You can find all our recent content related to the Russia-Ukraine conflict on a dedicated page on our website, where you can find blogs, podcasts, recordings of the events I just mentioned. We also produced a couple of pieces with wider scenarios and macroeconomic impact assessment uh, of the crisis, which I also highly recommend uh, for you to read and familiarize with. But today we would like to have a look at Ukraine and Russia uh, immediate neighborhood and review some of the key areas impacted by the conflict in the short term and also look into their potential long-term consequences. These countries are much more exposed to the conflict because of the closer human, transport, trade and cultural links. They uh, feel the war not as some kind of remote event, but as something at their back door. Joining me today uh, is a brilliant team of GC regional experts who have been tirelessly working over this past few weeks and months to help our clients and wider network to understand the context and implications of this crisis. So, Aniko Zebik, our senior associate for Central and Eastern Europe, Beata Stepanchenko, associate at our political due diligence practice, and Alexander van der Wusten, associate focusing on Russia and Eurasia. So, guys, welcome uh, all to uh, this podcast. And I would like to start uh, with the most immediate issue, actually, the humanitarian crisis and its uh, impact on the neighbor uh, countries' politics and policy. And, Anika, I'm turning to you here. Can you tell us uh, which countries have so far taken the largest number of Ukrainian refugees and how do they address the immediate needs of people in, uh, in need who cross the border uh, to, to the west of Ukraine? Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for um, this question, Alexander. Um, as you mentioned, uh, the war is influencing um, um, globally, but most importantly, we feel its influence in the neighboring uh, countries. And it's, uh, it's a certain political impact. Um, it's been a, a main campaign topic in, in the Hungarian election, for example, last weekend. Uh, we can look at the worsening economic outlook. 
but uh, what is the most direct um, uh, has the most direct consequences is the influx of the refugees. Uh, we are talking about more than two. Uh, 4.2 million refugees uh, fleeing Ukraine um, since uh, the start of the conflict, and uh, and they arrive um, in neighboring countries where Poland has taken most of them. It's uh, 2.5 million uh, refugees so far. Uh, the the second largest influx of refugees arrived in Romania, um, more than 600,000 um, in Hungary, around 400,000. So the numbers are really huge, especially if we compare them to the, the size of the, the, the population in these countries. Um, I have to emphasize that, uh, as you mentioned, uh, these countries have uh, cultural historical uh, ties with Ukraine. Um, we, we can also already see that some Ukrainians been living uh, before uh, the, the war in these countries already, like in, in Poland. So uh, this type of share of uh, uh, culture and historical background, or in the Hungarian case, um, uh, ethnic Hungarians living in Ukraine now um, moving um, uh, as refugees to, to Hungary, is has influenced how the uh, how the society is reacted. And uh, we have to uh, admire the solidarity that uh, was, we can call it an unprecedented solidarity uh, from the side of civil society and volunteers, uh, local authorities and the state uh, that's been um, um, expressed in this way. It really is a sign of true goodwill. But on the other hand, uh, we could see that it was mainly the civil society and volunteers who reacted at the beginning. There has been some criticism that the state at an institutional level was slow to uh, to, to react to the crisis. Um, they caught up and uh, in two ways, and one of them is the, uh, the legislative uh, background. So what we can see now is that uh, the, the 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 different um, rival countries are trying to 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 do their best uh, to uh, to to try to integrate these uh, refugees. Uh, but I would like to uh, warn uh, that some of these countries are already uh, signaling that they are reaching the limit of how many people they can receive, and they are very much reliant on international support as well. They are not shy for asking for international and EU funds, um, different earmarked monies to fund uh, investments in housing, education, health, employment, or, or childcare. Um, so that is also an element where they need our support. Absolutely. Uh, thank you very much. Obviously, it's an unprecedented strain on um, these countries, uh, on their populations and on their politicians and their policymakers as well. And you mentioned some of the um, areas which might require further attention and uh, actually an immediate attention from the policymakers to ensure that the medium and longer term uh, impact uh, is um, met and absorbed in a uh, proper way. So I just wanted to um, ask a bit more specifically about the efforts the government's currently um, undertaking to integrate uh, migrants, especially those who are staying on on a kind of more longer term basis. What are the um, 
policy efforts and what also what 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 is the role of uh, businesses and where uh, the most immediate needs um, currently lie and how how the business can help uh, the policymakers to shape this uh, future um, uh, provisions. Please allow me first uh, two general comments. One of them is that um, I, I mentioned uh, the number of refugees uh, coming to these countries, but. Uh, but not all of them are staying. It's, it's still in flux of, of how many are using uh, these countries only as transit countries and how many are planning to stay there short or midterm. Of course, it is influenced by uh, previous connections, as I mentioned, uh, ethnic Hungarians speaking in the language. Uh, for them, it would be a, a good place to stay in Hungary or 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 or. or those Ukrainians who have been already in in Poland and they they now brought their families also uh, to to stay with them. Um, so so they might be staying there uh, for a longer term. Uh, some of the the refugees actually are waiting and hoping for the the conflict uh, the military conflict to to uh, to end soon so they can um, return to their countries as soon as possible. So that's that's one of the questions. Uh, what is exactly the number we are talking about. How many are going to stay in these countries? How many are moving on? And then the second question is uh, that uh, impacts uh, my answer that uh, that uh, the, the legal status of the refugees is not clear yet. Um, some of them are there uh, because they have visa-free travel opportunities in the EU already as Ukrainians do. Um, they they are also um, have now the uh, from from the EU uh, side, um, a temporary protective um, um, a status under the temporary protection directive uh, that uh, they can also um, um, use, and uh, some of them are already signing up for refugee protection. So all of this is impacting in in which status they are currently in the neighboring countries. But uh, definitely, um, we can see that uh, at national legislation, and that was um, a specific intention of of almost all of the, the countries we are talking about, to, to pass law as that expand support to Ukrainian refugees. And I would uh, cite Poland was uh, one of the first countries to uh, enact new legislation um, to, to specify that they would like to um, they would like to uh, legalize the all new Ukrainian arrivals for 18 months, and then uh, and then they can uh, apply for a, a three-year-long uh, temporary residence, and uh, and their status is going to provide um, not only a one of payment uh, of um, of a certain amount, uh, but but also uh, possibilities to access uh, uh, benefits in and healthcare and education, and also uh, the employment status uh, would be um, legalized this way. So uh, so I can say that uh, uh, these countries acted quite fast to to regulate uh, their state. Um, yes, to add this, um, you asked about businesses as well. Uh, we, we know that, um, um, and maybe we can talk later about the, the, uh, the, the possible employment situation of these refugees coming into the country. But I would like to uh, draw attention to vulnerable groups because we are talking in many cases uh, about um, um, uh, women and, and children who will need uh, healthcare provisions and, and education. Uh, so they are going to be um, 
uh, a pressure on the, the the public sector in these countries. But on the other hand, also businesses have to be uh, mindful. For example, um, in uh, in each of the countries, there are signals that the vaccination status of of uh, of, of of these refugees, especially children, is different from what what is there locally. So the healthcare authorities uh, and uh, and of course um, um, pharma. Uh, companies have to react to 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 watch and monitor the situation uh, about the, the the possible need for vaccination, and uh, we can also just mention vulnerable groups like uh, uh, people living with HIV. They need uh, special treatment as well. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, thanks, Anika. And uh, obviously, it will be quite an unprecedented task to um, reallocate this um, help and support, this logistical supplies, uh, which are also facing a great disruption because of the on-the-ground uh, operation and uh, the aftermath of the war um, in, in, in many places, but also um, um, yeah, the logistical chains, which are not um, yet established established and uh, might need to be um, reconsidered and um, uh, rethought. And uh, I also wanted to ask you about the politics in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, because obviously it has been uh, quite a controversial uh, topic um, on the European level and uh, there are claims that, for example, this uh, Ukrainian uh, crisis has uh, helped to um, save the political fate of uh, the Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban and help him uh, win the recent election. Or in Poland, for example, it helped uh, the government to um, divert their attention from uh, the thorny rule of law issue and so on and so forth. So in your assessment, uh, how has the crisis affected uh, the positions of domestic politicians and their relationship with uh, Brussels? Yes, uh, we would need to go um, country by country. In, uh, in in looking at how it affected, but first of all, let me just state that uh, the EU um, has acted as as one alliance in sanctioning uh, uh, Russia after uh, the the war started, and they they acted quite fast. So so everyone uh, fall in line, even if they had different ideas um, about the the the, um, the the functionality of a sanction regime, or 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 if they wanted to to go further immediately. Um, there's been different voices, of course, but they had to align their positions and the EU acted fast. Uh, how it affected individual countries? I think it's, uh, it's good if you stick um, to, to Hungary and Poland as, 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 as examples. Um, I mentioned already that in the Hungarian election, uh, the war in Ukraine became one of the most important campaign topics. Uh, um, it, is, uh, it is so close to, to Hungary that uh, it is an existential question, uh, so to say, for the population um uh, the the question of war and peace uh, how it is going to affect their lives as well um and uh, and we can definitely say that uh, prime minister viktor orban um has been more successful on reassuring um his voter base than the opposition candidates um Basically, uh, emphasizing that uh, Hungary must stay out of the the, the war uh, at all costs. 
Um, and, and also emphasizing that even though we can see that there is economic hardship coming, uh, he's promising that all those uh, benefits uh, that the Hungarian population has received um, uh, throughout the past years are going to stay there. Whether he's going to be able to uh, hold on to this promise uh, is, is a question. And he has already, uh, and his finance minister already um, um, stated that, yes, certain realignment update to the budget is necessary, uh, but that is going to be the next step. Um, absolutely, with a, with a, with a two-thirds majority, he will be able to, to do this. As for Poland, Poland has always been very hawkish about uh, Russia. And, uh, and, and if I talk about existential threat to, to Hungary, they, they feel uh, this threat even more. Uh, and they stepped up uh, to uh, to to really high level immediately of uh, of, of being the, the uh, driving force of uh, sanctions on Russia on on assistance provided to Ukraine um, in in humanitarian military um, uh, viewpoints as well and uh, and we can see that uh, uh, Poland um, well, I don't want to be cynical about it but but they definitely um, um, rethought their uh, relationship with, with the EU and US, uh, where they had previously debates on rule of law. And, and so far, uh, they are not um, um, uh, going back on any of, uh, of, of these topics, but, but definitely they, they, they uh, deprioritize it uh, in a sense that they are focusing more on how they can cooperate. And it seems that from uh, from the EU side, they understand this wish, and uh, and and uh, and they are also uh, putting uh, these uh, issues to the side to a certain extent. But certainly, it is not forgotten, and it's not going to go away. Um, we can see also that um, uh, between Hungary and Poland, there's been um, certain disagreements about uh, Hungary's um, uh, what they see non-committed. Uh, non-committal status uh, or, or opinions about uh, about Russia and uh, and, and Putin, um, but uh, I think this is also going to change uh, after the election because there is a situation now where they have uh, they have a fellow leader that they have to deal with, and uh, and this is how they are going to look at it to to try to um, um, engage and negotiate to the extent that is uh, necessary at the, um, in the international community. So um, uh, Prime Minister Viktor Orban gave today a, a press conference and he said for him boycott of Russian oil and gas is a red line and, uh, and he is also needing uh, EU's cooperation on, on rising electricity prices. So uh, it is definitely a very, very um, difficult discussion that is going on about uh, new sanctions. But what he mentioned this as red lines and not other possible sanctions. So, so of course, we can talk about um, other ways um, as well. Okay, thank you, Annika. And these are the issues which I'm sure the investors around the world, and especially in Europe, are watching very closely, uh, as well as the actual situation on the ground in Ukraine. And we know that the um, uh, perception of the region as an investment destination is changing. And I would like now to uh, turn to Beata. I know that you have uh, been doing some work on this recently 
recently on a couple of projects related uh, to the region. And can you tell us more about this changes in the investor perception of the region and the factors which affect uh, this perception uh, in relation to various countries around Ukraine? Thanks, Alexander. Um, yeah, I'll speak a bit about kind of the investment perception and really just to put it in, into context, investment is really tied to the state of the economy. So with already the lingering impact of Brexit and COVID-19, the war in Ukraine is causing even more global ripple effects, which will definitely limit deal activity and investment in that region. Now, while most investment in Ukraine has come to a halt, the positions of the neighboring countries as investment uh, destinations have become a lot more riskier for investors because of the great deal in, in uncertainty surrounding the trajectory of the war. Um, it's hard to predict, but um, I would say these disruptions could last upwards of um, four plus years. Um, so investors hoping to kind of have a swift revolu resolution um, are very likely to be disappointed. Um, to kind of touch on the second half of the question in terms of changes um, and factors um, that could affect the investor perception, um, I could speak about Poland uh, as an example to this. So since the start of the war in Ukraine, as Aniko uh, mentioned, Poland has really built up its diplomatic capital, um, especially its relationship with the EU and the US. Um, however, on the other hand, its economy could really be facing some difficulties because of Poland's proximity to the war. Um, to kind of set up the picture, over the past 10 years, Poland has become an increasingly attractive investment base um, through which to run logistical um, and supply chain operations, more specifically in the CEE region and the Baltics, but also in the wider EU. Now, that's due to Poland's tactical position being at the crossroads for uh, many important uh, European and Asian supply routes, um, specifically connecting east-west and north-south trading routes. The Polish government has also increased its public investment in various transport and inf infrastructure projects. Now, these strong fundamentals have definitely fueled Poland's development into one of the fastest-growing logistics markets in the EU, in, in the EU sorry, um, making it very attractive for investors. However, now in the present, um, due to Poland's proximity to Ukraine, the brakes have definitely been pushed slightly um, and a significant level of uncertainty um, has come about. Now, this disruption is already being felt across all modes of transport, um, be that sea, air, rail and road, um, which has definitely had a big impact on the Polish logistics uh, market in many aspects. So land routes, specifically, uh, particularly road and rail, um, have actually been disrupted due to sanctions um, and also the breakdown of the trading relations between Russia and the West. So all of these factors introduce more delays and also introduce higher costs for businesses and investments uh, and investors using Poland as a trading base. So while Poland positioned itself as kind of a main link connecting Ukraine and the uh, Ukraine and the West, um, the war will will definitely cause consequences for Poland's economy in the mid to long term. Now. 
they can be both negative and positive. Um, positive in that Poland's relationship with the EU um, will likely improve, um, but also negative in that Poland's position as a trading nation could definitely take a hit depending on the length of the war. So with the trajectory of the war unclear, the one thing that we can be certain of is the continued uncertainty. And that alone could make investors wary. Yeah, uh, and um, obviously this degree of uh, nervousness can be prolonged if um, the war uh, is protracted, as you said. Um, I know that you um, have also recently explored the topic of investor attitudes towards uh, distressed assets in fragile states, and this might be slightly counterintuitive in this uh, situation. As you said, uncertainty is very um, high, but some of them, uh, some of the investors, Uh, actually um, looking um, into that uh, more closely in terms of um, how, how they can uh, see um, you know the uh, uh, opportunities in there uh, but in a more general sense what uh, in your opinion uh, can businesses learn uh, in general f- uh, from the situation in Ukraine in terms of their planning and uh, risk assessments and so on yeah so I mean you know investing in regions in general that are unstable and carry uncertainty, whether because of political instability or conflict is is going to be risky. Um, Now, this was the case uh, in Ukraine before the war started, but obviously even more so now. Um, So indeed, the war has increased the risk, but in the future, I believe with appropriate foresight and scenario planning, um, many risks can be priced in and mitigated, allowing for investment in sectors and regions that could hugely benefit from uh, foreign capital. Um, I mentioned this in in a previous insight, um, but investors will definitely be facing more scrutiny around the origin of their investments and their funds. Um, We've seen this with many Russian individuals being sanctioned. um, So any funds with ties to um, or exposure to Russian money, be that via partners or limited partners, could definitely lead back to complications um, through sanctions and seizing of assets. Now, um, that means that investors or funds can encounter both commercial and reputational challenges because of that. Um, I also believe that political due diligence will definitely be at the forefront of investments in fragile states. um, And that is really to ensure that specific risks are identified early on. So precautionary measures should definitely be made before they become unavoidable. Um, That could include reviews to portfolio companies in certain regions and their touch points with other countries um, will, will need to be assessed whether that whether these kind of connections could present legal, commercial, or reputational issues. Um, supply chains is, is a big one. In, in fragile states, they can definitely be impacted. Um, so that means disruptions will impact certain routes and um, definitely seeing increase in prices. Air cargo is currently avoiding Ukrainian airspace. Um, this is leading to higher cost of flying and longer routes. Um, shipping routes in the Black Sea are also disrupted um, and many logistical companies have begun charging a danger premium for transportation near Russia and Ukraine. So we advise that, you know, having alternative supply chains is important um, and 
to review existing routes to ensure that they are robust and can withstand appropriate stress stresses in such circumstances. Um, there's also the increased risk of cyber attacks across sectors. Um, there's definitely heightened fears that Russia could expand its cyber retaliation to the rest of the world. Um, in the worst case scenario, Russian hackers could target important infrastructure, not only in Ukraine, but also in the West. Um, that, so that means banks, transport networks, and power stations could be among those potential targets. Therefore, investors would really need to make sure that they have the correct cybersecurity in place. And finally, uh, labor market dynamics will definitely change in, in fragile states um, because of any migration triggered by conflict. Um, so investors will need to keep an eye out um, on this. So um, although uncertainty could, uh, uncertainty could uh, discourage investors to a certain degree, it will be up to them to invest in these regions to provide them with crucial sources of financing, job creation, technical technological advancement, and also strengthening the private sector development. Absolutely. Um, thanks, Beata. And uh, yeah, you've actually touched upon um, a couple of things uh, I would like to uh, come back uh, to later, especially on uh, labor and uh, migration. But for now, I would like to turn to um, Alexander uh, to look a bit more into specific sectors. We might not have enough time to cover uh, all of them, but one uh, specific example of the IT industry uh, stands out. And Beata already referenced uh, the uh, cybersecurity aspect, but I would like to ask you, uh, because I know you've been following this quite closely, um, about the um, impact of the war on the IT industry, because uh, Ukraine, but also Belarus and Russia uh, were very uh, well-established uh, regional hubs for outsourcing, etc. And uh, just for you to briefly describe uh, to us uh, how this uh, industry um, has tackled the challenges and uh, how the IT uh, specialists uh, react to the uh, crisis and uh, uh, what are the new uh, opportunities or emerging uh, regional destinations uh, for, for them are if they, they cannot continue uh, in uh, Ukraine, Belarus or Russia. Thank you very much, uh, Alexander. Um, so let me start with Ukraine. Um, so in, in the first weeks of the war, uh, yeah, many IT companies have activated their emergency uh, evacuation plans, which they had already been preparing in the months uh, leading up to the conflict. And obviously now that entry for Ukrainians to the EU is far less restrictive, uh, and Aniko had already uh, yeah, touched upon this in her remarks, uh, many relocate or many can relocate to EU countries uh, right now. Um, IT is a, is a mobile sector and, and in principle, yeah, asset light. So relocation is, is possible. Uh, to yeah to do relatively quickly in, in most cases, um, relocation to the EU is is more difficult for uh, for Russian and Belarusian IT companies, um, many of whom also now want to leave their countries because because yeah because of the sanctions related difficulty with processing uh, payments to Western clients or, or partners. Um, or difficulty in using software in some instances, and, and yeah, actually the general toxicity of uh, of, uh, of both markets right now. Um, yeah, many Russians and Belarusians do not have open Schengen visas, uh, and for example, you already see that that even international IT companies with uh, with offices in in Russia and Belarus 
are barred from entering, for example, Lithuania, as they are seen as a potential national security risk with uh, possible connections to Russia's security services. And, and yeah, and there are additional visa-related restrictions now being put in place in, uh, in Latvia and in Poland. Um, so instead, many uh, Belarusians and, and Russians opt for uh, visa-free destinations in Central Asia and, and the South Caucasus. Um, there are also some nuances here. So, um, yeah, while uh, one of the main attractions for, um, for, for, for countries like Georgia was that the, that, uh, that the cost of living there is relatively low, uh, you now see that the rents and food prices there have been yeah, rising dramatically due to the um, yeah, influx of Russian and, and Belarusians. Um, but, you know, for example, further to the east, um, which is interesting to see is that Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan seem to, um, for example, actively support the relocation of, of Russian and Belarusian IT specialists and, and companies. So, for example, Uzbekistan's government has recently set up a special visa regime for relocating IT companies and introducing various uh, tax breaks to uh, to yeah to convince many more to to follow. So, these are, for example, no corporate taxes that uh, and, and yeah, the absence of social payments. For relocating companies. Um, great. Uh, so yeah, obviously um, the, there will be um, opportunities for the neighboring countries to um, to host uh, some of the uh, industries and sectors and specialists uh, who have to uh, relocate from uh, the immediate proximity of the war. And actually, um, speaking about uh, Central Asia, uh, so you and me uh, have been to Tashkent recently. Uh, uh, attending the first uh, Tashkent International Investment Forum. It was an interesting timing to hold this event, uh, actually, and obviously the uh, Russia-Ukraine uh, crisis was an elephant in the room because uh, Russia is the, the biggest trading partner for many of these uh, countries. And uh, it was very interesting to see how the audiences there um, perceive also the risks and opportunities from uh, from the crisis. Can you tell us uh, a bit more? So, what was your main take uh, of how how the region, including Uzbekistan and other uh, countries in Central Asia, could uh, basically adapt to the changing reality and maybe uh, get some dividends for themselves? Yes, uh, of course, that's, that's a very interesting issue. Um, so, yeah, you're right. That's um, that's um, yeah the 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 issue. Uh, yeah, the the, the the, the war was 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 basically an elephant in a room at the, at a forum uh, in late March in Tashkent. Um, um, there was a, a quite powerful statement by the Uzbek foreign minister just a few days before the forum um, that his country, that Uzbekistan, will not recognize the uh, pro-Russian separatist republics in the Donbas and, and calls for uh, a peaceful solution to the war in Ukraine. And, and yeah, that was strategically timed. Uh, and, and this was noted by the US and European participants at the forum, which is uh, interesting, uh, interesting to note. Um, yeah, so yeah, for context, so the immediate short-term risk for Uzbekistan, they are clear. So as you said, Russia is the, is, is the largest trading partner. So um, um, Uzbekistan is very much reliant on Russia for strategic food imports, such as wheat and sugar. And Russia is also important for the transit uh, for various consumer goods um, and foods from from Europe, uh, which is also the case for other countries in, the, in, in, in Central Asia. 
Um, at the same time, so the, the, the current um, yeah, geopolitical situation um, opens opportunities uh, for new suppliers uh, and, and the development of new supply routes. So, um, for example, a considerable, considerable amount of goods uh, trade with Europe could be rerouted via Georgia and Turkey, uh, while India and Pakistan and Afghanistan uh, could provide an eastern corridor. Uh, more speculatively, um, some argue that Uzbekistan's newly acquired um, generalized uh, scheme of preference status uh, as part of the of, of their um, WTO accession process could actually be used by Russian companies as a backdoor for exports to uh, European and other markets, uh, which would be very damaging for European relations with Uzbekistan. Uh, actually, there's yeah also another backdoor for for Uzbekistan Uzbekistan's neighbor Kazakhstan which is a member of the Russia-led Eurasian Economic Union. Um, yeah, this could in turn enable European companies to trade with Russia while avoiding sanctions. Um, but yeah, more realistically and kind of looking ahead and, and more broadly, and this might apply to other countries in Central Asia as well. So, uh, but more in Uzbekistan, considering it is actively now opening up to the, to the West, to the Western market. Um, if, if the government there assumes that the economic circumstances will very soon return to the to the pre-war status and um and if it does not work hard on on, on this mid to long-term plans to reorient and diversify its economy the crisis damage may may not just be temporary as stressed by some government officials at the forum but could be actually more permanent than uh, than initially thought uh, yes, and this is probably uh, the question which uh, many uh, people in many parts of the world uh, ask now. So, to what extent uh, they they have an ability to wait for uh, uh, some kind of breakthrough or change in the dynamics of the crisis, or whether it's gonna um, be for uh, for long with us, and um, therefore uh, adjustments and adaptation will be needed rather than waiting for things to uh, become uh, as they were before before the war. They might never become like this. And um, very briefly, at the end of our conversation, I would like to um, put uh, a very brief question to all of you, uh, because while listening to um, uh, all, all of you uh, earlier, I realized that uh, the different aspects of migration, of people movements, mostly involuntary movements, are the common theme for uh, for these days and uh, at the end of uh, our conversation uh, as i said i would like to quickly uh, go around the room once again and ask brief questions to uh, all of you about the um impact of uh, migration on uh, our region and going back to you aniko uh, do you think uh, this crisis this situation uh, will change the attitude to migration in the central and east europe countries uh, or uh, is it still uh, be like one off uh, example of solidarity and the overall attitude might not change in the long term um, thank you. The governments uh, very clearly differentiating the communications between Ukrainian refugees and those they call economic migrants. 
uh, Ukrainian refugees, where um, they already have the the right to enter to uh, these countries to the visa-free regime. Um, they are um, arriving in the first safe country. Um, for example, these type of uh, uh, elements are 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 mentioned. Uh, in the official uh, communications, and that means that uh, the the plans at the EU level to reform uh, migration or refugee policies are not clear cut. Uh, how uh, how easy it is going to be? I would say that it's going to be a very difficult negotiations. On the other hand, let me point again to the 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 amazing effort by the civil society, local authorities, and 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 volunteers, and 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 the, the, what they showcase as 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 a a goodwill and and of course that might change uh, the mood um, at the local level a bit and that's 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 very positive for for everyone um, absolutely uh, and we can only applaud uh, to uh, these organizations and people who help um, to uh, make this uh, um, effort um, easier and um, Beata a uh, question to you um, you've been watching this uh, in Poland and other places but uh, what's your uh, medium to long term forecast if you want uh, about the uh, Ukrainian migration and how it might reshape the labor markets in the neighboring countries yeah so um, you know as you said Poland, Slovakia, Hungary Romania and Moldova are all taking in large numbers of Ukrainian refugees and many of those countries are also encouraging businesses uh, to employ Ukrainian refugees and they're also implementing new policies supporting the relocation of Ukrainian businesses. For example, the Polish government um, adopted a special bill on providing aid, simplifying employment procedures, opening employment services and extending social benefit schemes. Um, so whilst all these policies are coming into fruition, on the other hand, the development of the war will definitely determine the extent to which companies, especially in the transport, logistics and uh, construction sectors, will continue to be deprived of access to um, ma the male Ukrainian workforce, um, both during the war and thereafter. Now, as Aniko mentioned uh, earlier, the majority of the refugees coming into the neighboring countries are children, the elderly. Um, this is because male um, male refugees um, above the age of 18 have been making their way back to Ukraine from the start of the war to go and fight. So while it is hard to predict um, in the future, once the war has ended, um, there will once again be a shift in kind of the labor dynamics in these regions as a portion of the refugees will either be heading back to Ukraine, to their families, to rebuild their nation. Um, and the other half will either be staying in their neighboring in in the neighboring country where they um, flee to um, to continue to build their new lives. So it's difficult when you've got these kind of two uh, different groups. Yeah, absolutely. But someone recently mentioned to me, and I think it was one of this kind of brightest uh, uh, points and or, or in, 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 in the uh, majority of kind of bad news there, that um, because 
because of the such a big number of um, uh, women uh, who uh, uh, left Ukraine and they will uh, want to, to do something uh, while they're in Europe. So we might see an increase, for example, of uh, uh, Ukrainian uh, restaurants in Europe and people will be able to familiarize themselves with this uh, very nice uh, uh, Ukrainian cuisine. So obviously, uh, yeah, it might be uh, n- not very appropriate in these circumstances. But on the other hand, uh, this is how Europe got uh, uh, familiarized with uh, lots of other uh, world uh, cuisines d- due to this uh, impact of, of the conflicts in various parts of the world. But uh, I think in the end, we all hope that all these um, uh, refugees will come back uh, uh, and uh, uh, yeah, the labor markets will adjust, obviously, but uh, let, let's see how it uh, plays out. And uh, Alex, uh, to you, uh, my question will be slightly different uh, because we know that the migration aspect uh, when it relates to Central Asia and lots of people uh, from uh, the region work in uh, Russia and uh, their remittances are a big part of the Central Asian economies. So what uh, is the impact on this type of uh, migrants and can we expect uh, them to move back to their respective countries or uh, their remittances being uh, diminished because of the impact of the f- uh, currency uh, exchange and so on. So what, what is the situation uh, with this type of migration in the region? Yes, so uh, about the change in remittances. Uh, so st- since the start of the crisis, uh, at the end, of the, f- the end of February, the, the pressure on, the, on Uzbekistan's national currency, so if we take Uzbekistan as an example, um, which depreciated in line with the Russian ruble, um, has got remittances sent back home by, by Uzbeks working in Russia uh, very significantly. Um, so Russia is very important uh, for Uzbekistan and other countries. Um, it, it, for, many, for many countries, it accounts for most of the money sent, sent, uh, sent back from abroad. Um, 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 it, it is different. So there are differences between the countries. So in Kyrgyzstan, for example, remittances total the equivalent of around 30% of GDP uh, in 2020. In Tajikistan, the figure was close to 30%. And in Uzbekistan, it was far less, um, 11%. Um, so there's that difference. Um, but yeah, there there is the problem, at least in Uzbekistan, that many um, of those labor migrants working in Russia, uh, despite the sanctions hit on Russia, still do not plan to return to uh, to Uzbekistan simply because of the lack of, uh, of well-paying jobs um, in Uzbekistan. Um, um, so this is something the government also hopes to address in the in, in the next few years. And it's definitely an impact of the crisis that's, uh, that's sort of directly felt. Yeah. All right. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Alex and everyone, uh, for this highly informative discussion and uh, lots of insights into the different aspects of uh, the regional um, implications of the crisis. And obviously, uh, they will be continued to be felt for the weeks and months to come. And uh, we are monitoring here uh, at Global Council all these developments very closely, helping uh, businesses uh, navigate uh, all of this and build their uh, strategies, mitigation, and also um, readjusting their business models and uh, operational um, uh, environment uh, adjustments as well. So, uh, and we have also seen that this crisis has uh, left no one in the region uh, 
untouched. So everyone has been impacted in one way or another. Uh, and um, yeah, we can only uh, wish that uh, this war uh, could end uh, very soon, but its consequences will be felt uh, for for much longer. And um, thank you very much once again, uh, everyone uh, today. And uh, please uh, stay tuned uh, with the Global Council podcasts and other content on our, our website. Thank you very much. Bye. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.